Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is entitled The Scandal of the Particular. It's a guest essay by Nora Gallagher, the author of the newly released novel Changing Light, in the two bestsellers, Things Seen and Unseen, and then secondly, a book called Practicing Resurrection. Nora is a member of Trinity Episcopal Church, Santa Barbara, and a layperson licensed to preach by the Bishop of Los Angeles. She was a postulate for holy orders in the Diocese of Los Angeles and decided to remain a member of the laity. The Scandal of the Particular for Sunday, July 29, 2007 by Nora Gallagher. Sodom and Gomorrah, the infamous town. Let's clear up a few points first. Why God wanted to destroy the city, as reported in the Hebrew text, has to do with several specific events. Prevalent among them are sadistic cruelty to beggars and visitors, murder and greed. The other reason the Hebrew text tells us that Sodom was eventually destroyed was because of homosexual rape. Not, mind you, homosexual acts, but specifically rape. This is what happens shortly after the story of Abraham and God talking about how many people to save in Genesis chapter 18, 20 to 32, one of the Old Testament readings for this week. God sends two angels to Sodom to check out the bad rumors. They're welcomed by Lot. Some men of Sodom surround the house and demand that the angels be given to them so that they can be, quote-unquote, intimate with them. That's not about homosexuality. It's about raping a stranger. We are, I hope, all aware in this day and age that rape has nothing to do with sex and everything to do with violent crime. Lot refuses, and the rest, as they say, is history. Sodom, by the way, is derived from a Hebrew word meaning burnt, and Gomorrah from a word meaning buried, references, of course, to their destruction. But it isn't the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah that interest me, but rather the character of Abraham, and ultimately the character of God himself. Abraham wants to know, will God kill off the righteous right along with the wicked? Will he kill off the innocent along with the guilty? I recently heard of a wonderful theological idea, the scandal of the particular. The idea is that God, this enormous creative force that hung the stars and created the great sea monsters just for the sport of it, would care about one of us, one particular person. That the God of creation, Aristotle's unmoved mover or Plato's divine source, would stoop to join us in the mundane details of everyday human life, would care, as Jesus said, even if a single sparrow fell to the ground. This Yahweh was completely lowbrow to the Greeks. It was a scandal, from the Greek scandalon, which means snare or stumbling block. 
And yet, it's a beautiful scandal, isn't it? That God would care about one singular, particular life. Where would we be? How would we understand our human story without it? The first chapter of Genesis moves gradually from a picture of the skies and earth down to the first man and woman, according to Rabbi Richard Friedman. The story's focus will continue to narrow from the universe to the earth to humankind to specific lands and peoples and then finally to a single family, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. And here in this Genesis story, we also have Abraham, who reminds God that the story of salvation is the story of one single human being. Abraham persuades God to stay his hand on behalf of the few. They haggle, haggle down to ten people who were still righteous. God was ready to be just, to punish the wicked. Abraham reminds God to be merciful. That God and Abraham should care about a single human life is more than pure sentiment. It means that a single human life is more important than the aggregate, the generic group, the nation. I don't love groups, said the great philosopher Hannah Arendt. I can only love persons. In the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, what we hear is the emphasis on individual lives, individual souls, singular stories. The labels we use to separate and divide ourselves may be the last thing we need. Suppose there is no such generic label as Republican or liberal or fundamentalist, or here's a good one, terrorist. In a little over a week, we will commemorate the anniversary of America's use of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, August 6th. 1945. I think of Hiroshima when I read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, not because the people in Hiroshima were evil or deserving of what happened to them, far from it, but because it's the only whole city in all of history that was destroyed all at once in a single day. Rather than the hand of God sweeping the city aside, it was our hands, the hands of human beings. And I'm sure many of you remember this, but those of you who were not alive during the 40s might not know just how we Americans characterized the Japanese, our enemy. Wipe the Jap off the map was one wartime poster. When they started choosing target cities for the atomic bomb, they had Kyoto on the list for a while until Henry Stimson, the Secretary of War, pointed out that it was a famous historical city and to destroy it would be like destroying, oh, say, for example, Venice. But no one on the target committee knew anything about Japan, so this news came as a surprise to them. A series of photographs ran in Life magazine in the summer of 1945 that showed a Japanese soldier being burned out of his cave on the island of Borneo. The headline read, A Jap Burns. 
In six photographs, a barely discernible human being on fire is shown running until he falls. The caption reads something like this one, The Jap Who Wouldn't Quit Ducks Out Enveloped in Flames. The accompanying story ends, But so long as the Jap refuses to come out of his holes and keeps killing, this is the only way. I don't know how many of you have seen the film Letters from Iwo Jima, Clint Eastwood's movie from the Japanese point of view. I have not seen it, but I had a conversation about it with the young man who cuts my hair in New York. Tomo is about 28, and he's from Japan. He works at a fashionable downtown salon. He is by far the most polite person I've ever met. We have never talked about World War II, although I mentioned to him once that I had written a novel called Changing Light about, built, about the building of the atom bomb. He didn't seem very interested. I thought, he's young and it was a long time ago. But this spring when he cut my hair, he mentioned he had seen Letters from Iwo Jima. I said I had heard it was a great movie. Oh yes, he said, and then he hesitated. It is the first movie, he finally said, that tells the story from the Japanese point of view. Yes, I said. Then he hesitated again and said, and when I saw it, I cry. I looked up. He was behind me, so I could see his eyes in the mirror. He could only see my eyes the same way. So this very human moment was seen by both of us only in a mirror. And what about the bomb, I asked. Tomo, what do you say about Hiroshima? He again hesitated, and then he said very softly, it was a war crime. My friends, this is one of the hardest sermons I have ever written and I've gone back and forth on whether to preach it. The pulpit is the place for speaking the truth, but it's not the place for partisan politics. How to distinguish between the two is always a very sensitive task for any preacher. We must not, in a liberal church, become comfortable with hearing liberal partisan slogans from the pulpit just as we should not be happy with the partisan political sermons of another sort that might be delivered from other pulpits in conservative churches. But the question of Hiroshima is a moral question, and I want to contemplate what happened to us as a nation on that day, and to ask ourselves how it relates to the idea of the value that God sets on one human life. For my novel, Changing Light, I did quite a lot of research about the bomb, the error, the circumstances, and the final decisions. And I have concluded that dropping the bomb on Japan was not necessary. It was an act of one-sided war, to use the brilliant phrase of Dr. Richard Falk, an authority on human rights, an emeritus in international law from Princeton, and a professor of global studies at University of California at Santa Barbara.
The Japanese were defenseless against such a weapon. Robert McNamara, the former Secretary of Defense, and hardly a bleeding liberal heart, says in the documentary film The Fog of War that had the United States lost the war, we would have almost certainly been tried for war crimes. Hiroshima had a population of 400,000 people. 100,000 were killed on August 6th. By the end of 1945, 140,000 were dead, and the five-year death toll was 200,000. The death rate was 54%, compared to firebombing, which was about 10%. The ratio of civilian deaths to military deaths was 6 to 1. Another way to look at Hiroshima is by visiting the two museums. The museum in Los Alamos is dedicated to the technological. Models of the two bombs that fell on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and photos of the labs. It's a very distant and detached view, a view, as a friend said, from above the bomb. The museum at Hiroshima is another matter. There you will find, among the photos of destruction, the stories of those who managed to survive. <clears throat> Here you will find the human particular. Here is one story from a woman named Shin Bok Su, a Korean woman married to a Japanese man, age 28 at the time. My grandmother was going into the living room to wash the dishes. I had pulled the hose out of the bath and was using it to change the goldfish water in the yard. First there was a flash, then an ear-splitting roar. Instantly everything was dark. I could see nothing. I heard voices crying for help. Terrified and dumbfounded, I stood on shaking legs in the pitch black. It grew a bit lighter. Where had my house gone? The neighbors' houses, too, were smashed. Everywhere I looked was a plain of rubble. I hid my mother and second son in a field of millet growing in the corner of the grounds of Hiroshima City Commercial High School and hurried back to the house. I began to pull the roof tiles off the fallen house one by one to get to my two children caught underneath. I screamed their names as if I had gone mad, and rain as black as oil fell from the sky. Early on the morning of the 7th, our house caught on fire. I desperately shrieked, Teiko, Aikio. The fire ignited a mosquito net that was near where I expected the two children to be. And then I saw Takio's corpse burning. The three buttons on his school uniform remained properly aligned as he burned. This is the view from below the bomb in the particular human world. Those men who built the bomb, asked a girl who survived Hiroshima, what did they think would happen if they dropped it.
We've been told a great many things about why America dropped the Hiroshima bomb. Foremost was that it was to end the war and to save American lives. This is factually true. Hiroshima did end the war and it did save American lives. The Japanese were a tough enemy, but I think many of you know what other facts have come out about that time in 1945. That the Soviet Union was preparing to invade Japan on August the 14th from the north, from Mongolia. That also might very well have ended the war at a much lower cost to our troops and without the massacre of Hiroshima. We also know that the Japanese were exploring conditional surrender, even as our targets team was exploring a list of cities on which the first atom bomb would be dropped. They wanted to find a city, and this is a particularly chilling detail, that had not been destroyed by firebombing, so they could see just how well the atom bomb worked. 150 scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project signed petitions to President Truman the summer of 1945 to try to stop him from dropping the bomb on Japan. They were present-day Abrahams, if you will, arguing against the use of a weapon which they called, quote, a means for the ruthless annihilation of cities, end quote. They went on to say in one of their petitions, quote, our use of atomic bombs in this war would carry the world a long way further on this path of ruthlessness, end quote. Twenty years after Hiroshima, in 1965, when an interviewer asked Robert Oppenheimer, the director of the Manhattan Project, what he thought about President Lyndon Johnson's proposal to initiate talks with the Soviet Union about halting nuclear proliferation, Oppenheimer replied, It's 20 years too late. It should have been done the day after Trinity, the day after the experimental bomb was tested in July 1945 in New Mexico. Several days after the bomb was dropped, reporters asked Gandhi for his reaction. He replied the atom bomb, quote, resulted for the time being in destroying the soul of Japan. What has happened to the, to the soul of the destroying nation is yet too early to see, end quote. The soul of the destroying nation. Now there's a phrase. And that, if you will, is the heart of this sermon. What happened to us as a nation on August 6, 1945? What happened to us as a nation on August 6, 1945? How did Hiroshima erode our sense of morality? What we permit ourselves as a nation to do? How did it affect our fragile sense of what is permissible for one human being to do to another? Did the use of a weapon designed to ruthlessly annihilate whole cities contribute to where we find ourselves today? 
Finally, what is the line of connection from Hiroshima to Vietnam, from Hiroshima to Iraq, and on to Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib? The value of one single particular human life guards against the vilification of a whole nation, a group, a race, a tribe. It forces each of us to confront the part of us that wants to reduce the value of another in order to destroy them. If we make them Japs, then killing them is not the same as killing a fellow human being. But of course, that's not true. And that is why my hair cutter cried when he saw the film Letters to Iwo Jima. Because even though they were the losers and they were our enemy, the movie humanizes the Japanese. The soul of the United States is very much in jeopardy as we continue to launch wars designed to destroy others while risking comparatively little damage to ourselves. The view from above the bombs. One-sided war is now the norm. We go about our daily lives while somewhere off in the corner, people are bleeding and suffering and dying. They are below the bombs, underneath the bombs. But each one of us can be an Abraham, the possessor of a lone, particular, and deeply human voice. We have the power to speak, to penetrate the shadows in the fog. Our lives begin to end on the day that we are silent about things that matter. And so I ask myself, why are we so silent? A guest essay by Nora Gallagher, The Scandal of the Particular. For books this week, I review Blowback, The Costs and Consequences of American Empire by Chalmers Johnson. Blowback was published in New York by Metropolitan Owl Books in the year 2000. 268 pages. When Blowback was first published in the spring of 2000, about 18 months before the 9-11 attacks, many foreign policy journals ignored it. A review in Foreign Affairs, for example, even said that it, quote, read like a comic book, end quote. After all, Johnson's book was filled with gloomy warnings, including this one in his last few pages. Quote, the United States will be a prime recipient in the foreseeable future of all the more expectable forms of blowback, particularly terrorist attacks against Americans in and out of the armed forces anywhere on the earth, including the United States page 223. While American critics ignored Chalmers Johnson, the international community resonated with him, and the book was immediately translated into German, Italian, and Japanese. That his early critics could have been so badly wrong, and Johnson so presciently right, 
is symptomatic of the problems that he describes. And only one indicator of the importance of this book and its two sequels, The Sorrows of Empire, published in 2004, and Nemesis, The Last Days of the American Public, Republic, published in 2006. Blowback is another way of saying that a nation reaps what it sows. The term blowback first appeared in a 1953 CIA document about its overthrow of the Iranian government and described the predictable but unintended consequences of America's covert operations in foreign policies. What many people around the world hate about America, argues Chalmers Johnson, is not our freedom and way of life, as Bush likes to say, but our global militarism and predatory economic policies, which virtually assure future retaliations for decades to come. Even if most Americans are ignorant about our government's secret activities and believe that our country's motivations are virtuous, most peoples and nations think differently and they have very long memories. Johnson examines American foreign policy over the last 50 years and the parallels between America and the demise of the Soviet Union. His special focus is Asia in the last 10 years. The so-called peace dividend at the end of the Cold War did not bring a period of American demilitarization but the exact opposite. Instead of prudence, says Johnson, we have acted with what is now predictable condescension towards other nations in myopia about the certain consequences. Our deliberate global military economic dominion and careless disregard for how the rest of the world understands our predations are seeding resentments that are bound to breed attempts at retaliation. Separate chapters look at Okinawa, South Korea, North Korea, China, Japan, and the 1997 economic meltdown in East Asia. In characterizing America as a rogue superpower, Chalmers Johnson is polemical, but not partisan. The problems that he described are far broader and deeper than any single administration. Given that many people around the world resent our exploitative hegemony as a hopeless hypocrisy, one must ask whether, one must ask when, not whether, our accidental empire will start to unravel. Johnson asked that question over eight years ago. The subtitle of his most recent book, Nemesis, published in 2006, gives the answer. In that book, we are already in what he calls the last days of the American Republic. Chalmers Johnson. The title of the book is Blowback. For film this week, I review Idiocracy from the year 2006. Fast forward to the year 2505. 
In this dumbed-down world, the President of America is a five-time trash-talking smackdown champion who wields a massive automatic weapon. At Costco, where you can earn your law degree, an obese employee greets customers. Welcome to Costco. I love you. Every person has a UPC barcode on their wrist. Well, this is the world Joe Bowers woke up to after 500 years due to a failed human, human hibernation project of the military. In his previous life, he was a dullard, but in his new life, he is genius personified. And he saves the world after several zany escapes when he advises America that their dust bowl problems would cease if they irrigated with water instead of Gatorade. Some of the humor in this film is rather coarse, but for a fluff movie, my wife and I had some good, light-hearted laughs. If you enjoy cultural satire, you will love Idiocracy. And finally this week, we've posted a classic poem, For Whom the Bell Tolls, by John Donne. John Donne lived from 1572 to 1631. No man is an island, entire of itself. Each is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thine own or of thine friends were. Each man's death diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind. Therefore, send not to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. John Donne, 1572 to 1631, in the famous poem, For Whom the Bell Tolls. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July 29th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.